Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Two, Street Candles. Today's installment, Chapter 33. Two air cars roared over so fast we didn't actually see them until they banked and came back for another pass. They were hard to pick out in the dark, but their running lights were visible when they turned. We were under the cover of some trees, which was good because on the second go, the air cars went by more slowly. They both bore the box star on their underbellies in dim glow paint. That seemed like begging for surface-to-air attacks, but I guess they hadn't had to think about that yet. They didn't hover, so I doubted they were doing any serious scans, but they would be streaming the devastation back to whomever was in charge. Carmi and I didn't move. The cars looped once more, made a final slow pass from another angle, and then banked high, roaring off. They'll send more troops, I predicted. My captain didn't reply, but helped me to my feet again. Waiting on the air cars had been a chance to rest, but even so, all I could do was limp along slowly behind her. I'd begun holding my bandaged ear, or what was left of it, because it was throbbing badly and seeping through the gauze. Ear hurts, I stated stupidly. Yeah, Carmi replied. The shock meds interfere with endorphin release, I think. Sorry, but we have to move and I can't carry you. There was nothing left in your kit for pain. I know. I'm just complaining. Probably won't win me points on my review. It's not your most attractive trait. Watch your footing. I did, though I slipped anyway a few minutes later, going down on my side with a cry. Thereafter, Carmi took my arm over her shoulder and tried to keep me steady. That was almost more awkward than it was worth, what with my bag on the other side catching at every bush and tree trunk, but I managed to stay on my feet thereafter. We were up on the other ridge by now and past the worst of it. The house was behind, on the other hill, blasted and fully engulfed, lighting up the entire valley in dancing orange and yellow. The ground down here was scorched and torturously chewed up. If it had still been covered in crusty snow, it would have been impassable. But the snow had fled, replaced by thick smoke that choked the air. I might have lost it, shambling through twisted wreckage and mutilated bodies, but they were all gone now, scoured away by Griselda's wicked claws and long reach. As we hobbled down the silent mountain road on the other side, Carmi started hacking hard from the effort and fumes, so much so she was streaming tears and snot and even vomited a little. We pressed on after a time. My retinals told me it was almost midnight, local time. We'd been in these mountains half the night. 
that was equal to a full day aboard a ship or station, or anywhere else I'd rather have been. We walked past the site of the avalanche. Somewhat to my surprise, the soldiers actually hadn't blown it clear, but had only gotten rid of a few big boulders and fallen trees that had come down with the bulk of the debris. This had been enough for their cars to get through, and it proved easier going on foot as well. They'd elected to leave behind the transport that we'd stolen, after first searching it. All the boxes and containers inside had been tossed. They hadn't even reset the starting code. Reviewing that short clip of Hannah Smith punching in numbers, I read off the correct string for Carmi to put in, and the truck started right up with a throaty hum. The captain found a single nerve block in the mess in back, which we'd somehow overlooked before. It was a mild one, but better than nothing, and managed to take the edge off. She also changed my bandage. That hurt quite a bit, blocked nerves or no. We both drank deeply from the water packs, and the captain folded a few sticks of stim gum into her mouth from the army med kits. She'd be driving and needed to be sharp. As it turned out, Carmi was actually licensed on vehicles like this one from back in her ground pounder life, and she started us off smoothly. We need a way out of here, she stated, turning the truck around. Let's do the main road, I replied. If we move fast, we can avoid the responding units. You're sure about that? Of course not. And what about the checkpoints, she pursued, throwing us forward with a jerk. Them, I've seen in action. They usually just wave army trucks through. And if they don't this time? I said nothing and just held the panther in my lap. They did wave us through, though. The checkpoints seemed to be mostly about catching elites on the hoof, people who definitely weren't headed towards the seat of the new regime's power. As we drove, the local nets, official and otherwise, reported that charges of elitist collaboration had been leveled against some mid-ranking officers of the orthos. The political persecutions were already starting to gear up. Carnivus, as the public trials were now being called, was set to be a permanent fixture of the long nights here, lighting up the streets with flame and celebration. A growing list of the condemned was now freely available and constantly updated on many news boards. The worst was yet to come, I figured, and likely hadn't even been dreamed of yet. I think the battered and wounded freedom fighter riding shotgun on our truck added to our authenticity at least as much as the vehicle itself. I just nodded and saluted the checkpoint guards when it felt appropriate, or acted unconscious when that did. Even the auto guns paid us less heed than the traffic going in the other direction, which was reassuring. I passed over my rig to Carmi at one point and she called the ship. The pop-up hollow bounced in the air as she moved control sticks back and forth, and Aylareda's voice in the cabin was thin and buzzy. He reported that preparations for station breakaway were nearly complete. After I'd launched the missiles remotely, and what in God's name had that been all about? 
the revolutionaries had tried storming Griselda from open space. Those clowns only had makeshift ZG weapons, though, while Ben Roggenston possessed the other panther. He suited up, ducked out, and popped a few of them in the faceplates with the anti-purse rounds. These things couldn't penetrate the tough, clear plastic of their helmets, of course, but the guys were frightened by the attack to no end. Retreating in a mad scramble, so we were told, the revolutionaries threw back nothing but radio threats and bizarre political screed. Carmi told Griselda's second officer about Dell, and there was silence on the line for a long while. Yet Elareda, too, could act in the midst of grief, and finally just acknowledge the news. He finished off by pronouncing the explosive door puzzle solved. There would be some damage to the ship, but nothing like a bomb might produce. Grimly satisfied, she gave him the go-ahead. After that, we rode in silence. The mountains behind us, and flat, open tundra, cold and dark in the night, all around. Cars passed by every now and then, as well as other military vehicles that often flashed lights and honked in greeting, which Carmi diligently returned. I'm sorry for Dell. My fault. I could have done it differently. I spoke quietly, idly. I may even have been dozing. I was completely sincere, and it annoyed my captain. Belay that talk, guns. No more of it. Spacers don't deal in ifs or maybes. You know that. Mr. Small and his lady friend killed Dell. They tried to kill us, and when they couldn't, they left us to be captured. What I don't understand is why. I thought his ship was lost to him. That yacht you mentioned? Does he have another one now? Maybe, but his cover as a newsman is still holding water. Perhaps he just needed an air car to get them off the mountain and a safe place to hold up afterwards. They could wait for shipping to start up again, then leave normally. Whatever he was thinking then, though, he's making other plans right now, guaranteed. What do you mean? By way of answer, I fumbled in the right hip pocket of my cold gear uniform. It was a hassle, strapped in as I was, and I somehow managed to bump my ear on the window. This dazzled me with tiny spikes for long seconds. Carmi was alarmed by that, but it was nothing really, and I finally managed to produce the object in my pocket. It was slightly smaller than a clenched fist, squarish with rounded corners, flat black in color, no external lights, buttons, or sockets, and no doors. Just a small, solid piece of mystery. Is that... What Mr. Small was after from the beginning. It's a data block, but not a kind I'm familiar with. She took it up and glanced at the thing as she drove. It's out of noble space, she pronounced at last. A military-grade storage unit. When Gasto first came aboard and we were converting Griselda to use his engines, he had all the specs and integration designs on a portable block just like that. Where did you get it? Delay Maharn. She tapped her pocket with some love, and the two of them were acting like it was payday. After she shot Dell, I jumped at her. She thought I was trying to kill her. I probably should have. As she held it up, I scanned the thing with my wrist comp for wireless ports, open or otherwise. 
I was surprised to find nothing whatsoever presenting itself. The block wasn't registering at all. I'm not seeing anything, I said. Maybe it's broken. Carmi laughed and handed it back. You can't access one of these blocks like that, Ejok. It's hardcore military tech. Even if you could, these things are encrypted by default. Gasto had all the codes for his, so it was never a problem, but these are designed to hold state secrets if necessary. Fleet could crack it, maybe, but not a bunch of freight haulers. It's worthless without the master codes. Carmi laughed at it like it was a bad joke. So they were all spies, she declared, shaking her head. Maybe, I replied. Probably. But this wasn't about high secrets. It was about money. How do you figure? I stuffed the thing back into my pocket, which proved equally ungraceful. I tore a nail doing it. I sucked on my finger as I talked. Dah. Delay Maharn was the chief fiscal officer for the Barlow government, the top accountant. We're talking about embezzlement in the highest office, and probably over the course of years. A significant percentage of the taxes levied against major corporate entities, all of it stuffed away in off-world accounts. That information, account numbers, passcodes, access procedures, whatever, it's probably right in this block. She must have a backup somewhere. Carmi conjectured. I'm not so sure. She wouldn't want other copies floating around during a revolution, would she? As impregnable as these blocks might be, the first person to actually use one off-world would get all their money. She stared at the highway and swore quietly at a military car approaching from behind. Neither of us said anything more for the 90 seconds it took the thing to roll up behind us. I hugged the panther, but held it low in my lap. She held her breath. The car flashed its lights once, twice, then passed us in the other lane with a horn hoot. Captain Maynard smiled and waved back. She held the smile until they were some distance away. I still held the rifle, and I wasn't smiling. Mr. Small and his people will be looking for us then she said, as much to pull me out of the panic as to return to the topic. They, uh, they don't even know we're alive, I countered, and finally sat back, panting, sweating, cold and hot at the same time. I had been a heartbeat away from shooting at that car. And, uh, and they're stuck here anyway. Maybe not, she returned, noticing my reaction, ignoring it. That was no cheap air car they got into. It was a Norbis Sky Cruiser. Very expensive. Okay, they display good taste when they steal. So? So? Sky Cruisers have low orbit functionality. I thought about that, saying nothing, adding nothing. It seemed like a dead end. Where could they even go? The high dock? All of Small or Bacon's contacts had been in the old government. He would hardly be welcomed in orbit. They'll be working for a living wherever they end up, I concluded. That's not much justice, she muttered, matching my tired, dismissive volume, but with underlying, granular anger. We were silent after this, and I slept some. 
By the time we entered the city, an hour later though, I was awake and having a hard time concentrating. The Nerve Block was a cheap, off-brand, probably made locally, and it had already given out. My ear, my back, my knees, pretty much every part of me that came bundled with nerve cells was throbbing. Though the checkpoints into the city had proven no real obstacle, getting around freely now that we were there was not at all assured. Internal roadblocks were everywhere, and sooner or later we'd draw suspicion. After finding an especially dark spot, under the shadow cast by a storage tank attached to a factory yet to reopen, Carmi asked for my wrist comp and dialed up the ship again. She talked to both Ailareda and Ben Roggenston on a conference call, so I left the cab to give them some owner time. I took the opportunity to pee in a corner behind a few pipes. Casually, looking to the side, I saw a body right next to me, frozen in a puddle. It was a young woman. I didn't know her, thankfully. Naked and broken, she had been given the entire treatment. She seemed to have been killed days before, actually, and dropped into this dark place, where the ice and drifted snow never got direct light during the day. So she hadn't decomposed. She might never, in fact. Not here. Not on a world of permanent tundra. A place without summer, and so without even true winter. Cold at night. Warmer, but still chilly during the day. Stable. Unchanging. This girl was the perpetual victim. Ageless and accusing from the shadows. Railing silently, horrifically against societal madness and the total failure of leadership. Against a culture where the use and abuse of people was justified, institutionalized in a million different ways. The new group, riding in with General Beckus, would almost certainly be as bad as the last. And the murder of an unknown, unseen young woman in a black, obscure patch of this factory city would be as nothing to them. There would only be her pain and her ending, locked forever in a small, cold section of time. I had been here too long. I could look upon the rape and murder of a girl like it was part of the local color. I could see her body in a corner as being no more than windblown trash. Indeed, that's all anyone was on Barlow, living or dead. And I wondered what that made me, wandering across its face. I heard Carmi open the door and step down from the cab, so I zipped up and walked back out of the shadows to meet her. They're going to break away in four hours, she announced. 2200 ship time. You're up. She handed me back my rig, and I took a few moments to redon, readjust, and resync the display with my eyes and jaw. Then I placed a call. It rang only once, and a girl answered. This one very much alive, and not at all forgotten. Not by me. Space Air? Syndra looked different now. Long, blonde hair and blue eyes. Died sometime since I'd last spoken to her. She sounded worried, or I imagined she did, since I thought of her as a person with just two settings, light banter and irritation. 
yet she smiled upon seeing me, and it was very good to hear her voice. Yep, are you guys ready? It happens in four hours. I am near the city now. Patro had to leave to arrange things. He will meet us. You look very bad. You are hurt. Me? Nah. Are you safe? Ja, have, have you heard from Bendley? No, I haven't, but they caught G. I know. Medley's family, too. They are on the lists. I... We were safe, Spacer. We were getting away. The blues came out of nowhere. They knew which way we were going, but no one outside the household did. They are demons, wizards. I hate them. I hate them. The air felt warm suddenly. Not like the weather had changed, but more like I was colder. As if I was frozen. In a moment in time. In a shadowed spot behind a pipe. In a place without summer. Spacer, what is it? I have something to do. I'll call back. Remember, four hours. Confirm it with your dad. I closed the link on her perplexed, irritated face and new blonde locks and placed another call immediately. As usual, there was no video feed when he picked up, but I could hear Tar Heel in the background, which should have been a tempting comfort. Hey, hey, I hear there's thunder in the mountains, he began cheerfully, even gleefully. I was unwilling to melt, unwilling to step out of the urban tombs, even so far as to indulge this man's mirth, truly the only fine man I knew in this place. He was my friend, but I still had work to do. I need your help. One last favor. Carmi craned her neck, looking for a spot to pull over. This is good, right here, I stated, watching a slowly moving blip in my eye view. The place appeared to be like a small market or street festival, acting as an adjunct or continuation, it seemed, of Carnivus. There were a lot of people here, but not so many that you couldn't walk around. Stalls, tables, and sometimes just shipping crates sat on the pavement, lining both sides of the bright, wide alleyway. Floodlights turned it all into day, though dawn was only a couple hours off now. My ear hurt so much it was almost hard to think. Clotting gel from the med kit had stopped the bleeding, fought inflammation, and disinfected the wound, and Carmi's careful attention to changing the dressing had kept it fairly clean. But my head was sort of canted to one side all the time now, my muscles locked in pain. The headache was the worst part of it, but it was just a thing inside me. We can't park here. We're in the way. I won't be a minute, I told her, then grabbed my bag and stepped out. What do you want to buy? she asked, but I shut the door without replying. Following the path my retinals laid out, slipping invisibly through a crowd that looked just like me, from the clothes to the wounds to the grim light in our eyes. That blip had stopped moving, and I pushed past a cluster of old women 
gossiping in fast low speak right in the center of the alley. Beyond them, one of the vendors had set up a makeshift bar, and several men and a woman were there laughing loudly. One was a tall man of middle years, wearing dark cold gear. On his arm was a blue rag, like mine, like his companions. These others were in uniform and had rifles slung on their backs. The bar was made of old planks glued together and there were no seats. They stood by it, laughing boisterously, toasting each other and the new world they'd helped create. I held my bag the way I needed to and sidled up to the stall, the tall one not looking but instinctively giving way, lending room to a fellow freedom fighter. The bartender asked what I wanted, though her exact words eluded me. I pointed to the tall man's glass, which held a cheap, deep amber style of grano. She turned to get a bottle. At the height of a loud bloom of laughter, wherein the group was very much present in the moment, joy and pride locked together, all four of them comrades and patriots, I touched the tall man on the arm. He turned to me, hilarity frozen on his face. I almost didn't recognize him. It was a version I'd never seen. With eyes lifted in camaraderie, political affinity and triumph, the slave now supreme, a new master of this cold world. I shot him, through the bag, through the heart. The panther on full auto pumped a burst of anti-purse rounds with a fast snapping sound like a cough. It was a simple thing to do, just a twitch of the finger. Then I pushed him to the side and pointed the bag at his friends. They were each combat vets and reacted without thinking, without any hesitation. But their rifles weren't in hand, and mine was. They fell to the pavement without ever firing a shot. Screams, running, shoving, panic. The tall man's outer jacket was open and a golden gleam from the chain of his watch communicator shone in the artificial light of that nighttime market. The device Mather's mysterious net buddies had silently pinged and tracked for me. I said nothing. Takir lay at my feet, watching me with utter surprise. No pain, no fear, no anger, just shocked confusion. I stepped on his face, pushing it to the side. Then I took the truncated rifle out of my bag, held it to his temple, and emptied the rest of the clip. Carmi was near panic when I finally pulled myself through the dashing people and remounted the truck. I held the bottle that the bartender had abandoned when she'd run away like the rest. What happened? I heard shooting. So did I. You should drive. She didn't need to be advised twice, and we took off with a lurch, though people were in the way, and it was a stop-and-go sort of getaway. The alley disappeared in the rear view, though, and that felt good. Your legs are bloody. What happened to your bag? The rifle? I dropped them. Ejok. What did you do? 
The mirror showed a small mob behind us as we drove, running about blindly, searching for safety, for escape. They didn't know where to go or what to do, and they pushed and fought like panicked animals, like a single, thoughtless creature composed only of instinct and entropy. I took a long pull of the harsh, caustic liquor. I never answered my captain, and she never asked again. An hour later, I received a short message from the commissioner, containing only an address and the single short note, One Hour. The address corresponded to an open space marked as a public park on the retinal map. I hadn't yet seen anything like a public park in Finery, except in pictures and vids, so it was intriguing for that alone. I brought up the hollow function of my wrist comp to display the map so Carmi could see it. Syndra called then to tell me she was on the way. Her dad still wasn't with her, but would meet us at the park. She was irritated because he had been dismissive and had dispatched some trusted lackey to escort her across town. Her image appeared cramped, with the point of view coming from below as she spoke into her hands. Space air, she asked quietly. Will we make it? It was a simple request for information. She didn't have a wide variety of expressions, but she was scared and looked at me through her ring the weird, too blue of her eye dye, piercing, distracting. We're gonna try. You have to keep a cool head, okay? No tantrums. I don't have tantrums, she began, starting up with one, but then caught herself. I will be fine. I ask again, why do you help us? Why did you help me? I countered, blinking in exhaustion, pure exhaustion. I needed directions and a little human company that night, and you guys gave them freely and easily. I wasn't going to, remember? I had to laugh at that one. We're driving an army truck. There are a lot of them around right now, so don't get out of your car until you actually see me. She agreed to that, and we rang off. The park was on the other side of town, in the middle of many factories. I had the latest real-time roadblock and checkpoint information from the radio nets overlaid onto the map. A few houses were even marked as Snoopy to warn about people who had a habit of calling the new authorities to report any suspicious activities they saw from the window. The autogun emplacements also got special notice and were highlighted in throbbing amber. There were a lot of them now. A safe route looked like it would be circuitous and time-consuming. Forty-five minutes at least, Carmi confirmed. Leave the map up, but try to get some rest. You look bad. I took another pull of the Grano, then complied, leaving my arm out so she could consult the pop-up as she skulked along the back roads and alleys of the city. I never did sleep, but I sat back, taking occasional sips. The booze didn't really ease the pain, but it did seem less important now, which was just as good, in the circumstance. 
Right turn, up there. There are two right turns up there, Ejok. Um, hard right. Right. Along back lanes and pass-throughs, we cruised in our stolen truck, once dodging an oncoming convoy of others just like it by ducking down a supply road for a packaging facility. We were around 50 meters from the target coordinates when we decided to stop, abandoning the army vehicle outside a trash dump. There were nearly a dozen kids in the dump, screaming and playing among jagged metal and armor-glass garbage, hiding and jumping out from boxes and sludgy-looking barrels. Most of them didn't have proper cold gear, though some wore ill-fitting clothes that looked nearly new, no doubt looted from the homes of the elites. We moved off without a word between fences and under feed lines for unknowable manufacturing processes that spanned roads and lives. We stepped between towering buildings that threw down heavy shadows in the early dawn. Dawn! There was sunshine! Now when did that happen? I stumbled and fell, the open grano bottle skittering across brown ice, spilling away. I cursed heartily while Carmi got me to my feet. We continued on past a bunch of people repairing a factory feed conduit. They said nothing, nor even saw us, I think, as we walked by and then up the nearby steps of a short pass-through. This put us on a main road. We had to go through another alley down the block and across the way. We just stepped out like natives. People were on this street, coming and going, in something closer to busy normality than I'd yet seen. Give them their due, the blues were starting to restore order in town. I was hunched over and shuffling, like an old man intent on a destination that mattered only to him. It was easy, so easy to be one of them. With a sudden horror... I knew that if this failed, if we didn't leave here right now, this very day, I might never be able to scrape Barlow off my soul, nor might I even want to. The alley across the road was narrow and dark, but not long, and it led to a surprisingly open and airy little garden bordered by a busy road. There were people here as well, Families and hustling traders with trinkets and gadgets spread upon blankets and benches. Not quite a market, not much of a park. It was just a place where people were hanging out and coming and going. We looked around, but I wasn't at my most observant. But then there was Sindra, dressed in gray coveralls and a jacket. If I hadn't already seen her new blonde features, I might have missed her entirely. She stepped through the crowd, a tall, young man next to her in civilian garb but with military bearing. When she nodded to him, he returned it. He studied the captain and me for a moment, then seemed to melt away into the small crowd right before my eyes. You look even worse than when I first met you, Spacer. Enchanting, as always. Carmi, this is Sindra. They nodded to each other with tight smiles. 
I was about to ask what we should do next when another text, off to the corner of my eye view, arrived in my inbox. Two blocks north, parking lot, five minutes. Okay, that was your dad. I guess he got the notice of a safe handoff. I am not the package, she said inanely, irritated and very much herself. Carmi just smiled. We continued on through the plaza, then along the bustling street. There was a checkpoint several blocks down to the south at a busy intersection, but we were going north. The early morning sun, still low enough to be mostly hidden by the cityscape, had yet to melt any of the frost or snow. Occasional civilian cars and trucks drove by, slowly and a little hesitantly, as if unsure the morning's normality was yet real. We stepped under a low conduit bridge feeding chemicals to a steamy factory. On the other side was an open parking lot. The factory was throwing deep shadows from the rising sun, and it was still quite dark here. A few cars vandalized and burned out, sat there silently. The place was fenced, but whole sections of it were missing, and we just walked right in. What now? Carmi asked. Now we wait. We stood by a burnt van. The chit-chat was stilted, and no one really listened to anyone. Or maybe that was just me. We were never hallooed or challenged by the natives walking by. No one cared. My feet hurt standing there. My ear hurt. Carmi checked her watch. When is your father getting here? I, I do not know. He should be here now. She touched her ring com at that and waited for a moment before breaking into a long, punching question in Seishan. I couldn't hear the answer, as the audio was piped to a tiny earbud she wore under the dyed hair, but in moments it was clear she was upset. What is it? I tried to coax out of her, but she ignored me and began barking quietly at her ring. At length, and in exasperation, she turned to me. He says he is not coming. This is ridiculous. Talk to him, space air. She swiped at her jewelry, and I saw a conference call notice appear in my view. I took it with a small wave, and immediately the haggard features of Commissioner Hark Vernays appeared in a circle off to the left, with a fishbowl image of Sindra on the right. I dragged the commissioner more front and center, then enlarged it so his heavy, drawn face and moist eyes filled my field of vision. Please... He began without preliminaries or hesitation. Get her aboard, any way you can. I... I cannot be with you. It took all of my influence to arrange this. My fellows believe the vessel will be making a last-ditch attack upon the Blues. I must be here for it, or I will draw suspicion and discovery. I have arranged for the pilot to turn the vessel over to you, the moment the troops are gone. It is a mindless, impossible mission, and men will die tonight in its attempt. But my Sindra, my child... No, Sindra barked. This is unacceptable. Get over here now, Patro. I will not leave without you. 
You must, Sindra. I cannot get away, but do not worry, Beben. I have a safe place and I will hide until all this is over. I promise you, I will be just fine. He grinned broadly with his practiced, masterful smile, but there were tears at the corners of his eyes, and he switched back to Seishan, whispering little endearments to his daughter, who scowled darkly the whole time and kept shaking her head. It was utterly, utterly impossible, and painful in a way nothing yet had been on Barlow. After a moment, a muffled voice from off-camera called to the older man, and he looked up gruffly. Without hesitation, he turned back to us and said, Get it done, that is all. And then he was gone. Sindra's face turned mottled with anger. She yanked her ring off and threw it across the slowly brightening lot. She sat on the fender of the charred wreck in silent fury, her face screwed up and her eyes hooded and distant. I steered Carmi away a few steps and explained the conversation, but she'd guessed the contents and nodded sadly. There was nothing more to say, nothing to do but stand by, and even then, not for long. I nonetheless took the intervening minutes to call Griselda, and Ira confirmed that they were ready to try their escape. A. Lareda was busy making station egress calcs, which would allow the ship to launch without bouncing off a corner of the spinning high dock. This information was a standard piece of the exit data package provided by orbital control for any ship but Griselda wouldn't be getting any EDP this time, so it was all down to its chief pilot. They would wait for us to be in orbit before breakaway, and we would meet up after that. Engineering had rigged up an adapter ring for the bomber transporter's airlock, which Ben Roggenston, familiar with the Heliopod design, was confident of. I signed off when a heavy whining sound, like a large air car, but deeper and buzzing at the same time, approached quickly from somewhere beyond the rooftops. I called to Carmi to report that the ship was just about ready up there, then ducked involuntarily when a large, dark machine cruised over the factory nearby with what looked to be less than a meter's clearance. It stabbed by at a reckless speed, then spun down for a drop landing some fifty or sixty meters from us. With a roar of descending exhaust, it settled onto an upper platform near the back of a nondescript building nearby. The platform it sat upon was accessible by a long set of cracked cement stairs. The transport had a side bay door opening as it descended. It spewed a squad of armored soldiers who hit the ground running. They dashed into a side passage by the building and disappeared like dark ghosts. They didn't know there was nothing of value there, that whatever secret mission they'd been tasked with was a fiction designed to get this vessel in this spot at this exact time. Their only exit gone, they'd be stranded when responding revolutionary forces arrived and most, if not all of them, would die. 
Two more soldiers in black armor and the pilot in a less bulky uniform were left to guard the machine. Trotting across the parking lot and then up the cement steps, we approached quickly. Three short rifles were on me the moment my puffing body climbed to the top of the stairs, but they put up their aim when Syndra appeared. The three figures looked to each other, then stepped away from the wide, wedge-shaped transport, which still had engines fully revved and thrumming. They ran right past us and down the same stairs, having completed the only mission that had ever really mattered. We were alone then, and simply walked over and climbed in. Carmi moved forward to the cockpit while I got Syndra settled into one of the bare seats that lined the vessel's inner cabin. I double-checked her harness, then went forward. Can you fly it? I shouted into the captain's ear. A little late for that question, she yelled back. Close the door and strap in. She checked readouts and listened to radio chatter. She flipped switches and did all that other piloty stuff. I went back and punched the bay door closed. In the next building over, I could see flashes through barred windows, as if a firefight was occurring. But I could hear nothing over the whine of the engines. The hatch closed fast and then locked, but we were already rising. I settled next to Syndra and busied myself with my own harness. She stared off at the wall, seeing nothing I could understand and yet somehow did, perfectly, dismally. The Heliapa banked left and Carmi put us into a steep climb. We pulled away, away from it all. The young girl next to me dropped her face into her hands and sobbed. I tried to comfort her, but she shrugged me off. I leaned back and just closed my eyes. I should have felt some kind of relief. I should have felt the weight of this place easing as we rose through the air, gaining first meters and then kilometers. I should have breathed easier as my captain poured on the power, outstripping a squadron of air car fighters scrambled to intercept us. I should have relaxed as we broke atmosphere and made orbit. Because it was over now. And we were free. But Syndra's grief was an awful, unstoppable torrent, and it echoed off something within me. Her small shoulders shaking, it burst forth, sweeping away lives and memories. It was the very song of her world. Burned out. Lanced through forever, lost in time. And it was not a relief. It was not a relief at all. You have been listening to Street Candles, written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com or drop me an email at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. 
The Star Drifter theme is a piece called Icor by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The Street Candles theme is called Undercover by Karsten Holy Moly and can be found on dig.ccmixter.org. This production is otherwise copyright 2013 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Street Candles is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead or any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care. <laughs>